Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you. It's been a few weeks since I've been in the pulpit. In fact, the last time I was in the pulpit was on New Year's Day, if you were here that day, as I got to the best part of the sermon. I mean, it was the best part. The fire alarm went off, and, uh, and so we had to go. And I, I just got to tell you if, you, if you were here, you just missed a masterpiece of an ending. It, it, it was just going to be spectacular. Uh, I'm kidding, but uh, I'm not kidding about the fire alarm. The fire alarm did go off. So um, we're hoping that... I've made this sermon compact today, so whoever it was last time that just really got tired and went out and pulled the fire alarm, you're not going to have to do that today, okay? We've got a hard ending because we have communion today. But uh, no, I'm glad to be back up in the pulpit with you today, and uh, it's, it's good to see you. We're just fresh back from our annual elders retreat, and so our six elders spent uh, the week together. And uh, this was my, I think it was 12th or 13th one of those I've attended since I came on to our team uh, back in 2011. And I will say, I don't ever remember a more meaningful elders retreat than the one that we enjoyed this week. There was, there was a unity, there was a peace, there was a harmony, there was an excitement about the future. There was, there was just so many good elements. The fellowship was sweet. So we're so excited about the future for Life Fellowship. And at an appropriate time, someone from the elder team is going to come and brief you with about, about some of the things that uh, we hope to see accomplished in 2023. Uh, you know, there's, there, there's going to be an arm wrestling contest on who gets to, gets to talk to you, I think, because we're so excited about it. But uh, there, there's great things going on. Thank you for being here at Life Fellowship. If you're joining us today on the Internet, thank you for being here, whether you're watching it live or whether you're watching it later this week. Uh, we hope that if you're just kind of checking us out, you'll come and give us us an in-person visit. Uh, If you're out of town or not feeling well, uh, we hope you get to uh, get back home and get to feeling better so you can join us live. And if you just always watch on in the internet, come on back, all right? Come join us. We love to see you, and we miss you when you're not here. So um, I hope you've had your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 6 as we have continued this series, began this series in in, uh, January on family legacy. So today it's my turn on this, and I have to tell you right up front, there is no silver bullet, there is no secret formula, there is no magic recipe, there are no guarantees that your kids are going to turn out right. I'd love to tell you that. I'd love to tell you, do these 10 things and your kids will turn out to be the next generation of Billy Grahams. I'd love to tell you that if you do this in the morning and this at night and this in between, that that it it, it is absolutely God's magic uh, formula. It's his secret sauce that'll make your family the most peaceful, wonderful, uh, easy uh, task that has ever been put before you. I'd love to tell you that. But I will tell you, that that's just not the case. All of us, I believe, want our children to turn out to be adults who love Jesus the way that we do or better. We want them to have a biblical worldview that guides their decision-making. We want to have the wisdom that stops them from making life-altering choices for the negative. We want our children to have correct spiritual priorities. We want them to have an authentic relationship with Christ. We want that from the moment we pick them up out of the crib the very first time. From the first time they slip their hand into ours. When they throw their arms around our neck. 
We want that for them. We want that for them till the moment that we see them get in their overloaded car and drive off to college for the first time. We want it as we feel her place, her hand on the crook of our arm, and we walk her down the aisle. Or you give your son that last big hug before he walks down to start a family of his own. We want it when they have kids. We want those things for our children. But the truth is told by most of us who have had kids, that it's just not that simple. There are no guarantees. But, 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 but you might say, what about Proverbs 14, 6? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I'll let you know a little secret. All of you know, all my life, I've, I've, I've been duly employed. I, most normal people don't need to. If I don't have enough to do, I'm just going to be in trouble all the time. So I've, I've always, a variety of things. I, quite honestly, for years, I traveled the country talking about how to raise your kids right, and I had my formulas and so forth. And, and then my kids got old enough to talk back to me, and I stopped doing that because I realized none of what I was teaching was working. <laughs> but I've, I've, I've tutored, I've, I've taught, I've taught adjunct college, and for the last um, 16 years, I've been a professor at Liberty University in their online program since the very early days when they had 300 students in my department and today they've got 13,000 they've got 105,000 students online some of you have kids who have gone some of you have gone there and and a few of you've actually had me as a professor but among the, uh, in that role on my title in my employee profile I am the subject matter expert for family discipleship that's, that's one of the titles I have. And I will tell you that never has anything been assigned to me that at times has caused me more pain and more grief than that title. Because I've got to be honest with you. If I'm going to stand here and preach these principles with you, I've got to tell you, it isn't easy. There are no guarantees and if I could keep count of the number of buckets I've cried in my pillow at night, I couldn't number them as a dad. I'd love to tell you, I've got four adult children. I'd love to tell you that all four of my adult kids follow Christ passionately. I'd love to tell you that. But if I tell you that, I'm lying to you. Oh, I did the formulas. I read James Dobson's book. That was the big ones when I was growing up, or when my kids were growing up. How to have a disciplined child. I've been used it as the paddle a few times. I mean, you know, how, how much closer to the truth can you get than, than Dobson, right? I didn't realize, teasing, but. Use a big board is what I use, but anyway. <laughs> no, the reality is. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 6, is not in the book of promises. It's in the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs are truisms. They're often true. They're good counsel. They have a good basis in biblical truth. But there's this thing that we all have. The sin nature. This will. This Satan-inspired rebellion. Rebellion. 
And every single person in this room, whether they're 90 years old or nine years old, has to daily struggle with that. And your kids are going to struggle with it too. But just as surely as in your life, you made a day that God was going to matter, that truth matters, that the Word of God was going to be the lamp unto your feet and the light unto your path, that you were going to tell yourself no and say yes to the Holy Spirit, just as surely as that day had to occur for you, it must occur for your children as well. And folks, that's out of our hands. If we could choose, we would choose for them. If there was any way possible to guarantee it, every parent who loves God would make that choice for their parent in the right direction. But that's not how it works. But make no mistake, the parent has a vital role in providing the landmarks for their children so that when they seek right, when they seek godliness, when they seek truth, they know the path to it. And that is the role that has been assigned to every parent. And that's what I want to address today. I don't mean to be discouraging to you, I don't, and, and I hope you won't be. But life is just not so simple. And the sin nature and free will and rebellion and all kinds of other characteristics of the human experience are so strong. And the reality that in spite of our design by God, it has been marred by Satan. And all of these things combine to make parenting a matter of doing our best, but it is not a science, and there are no guarantees. So on that discouraging note, <laughs> I want you to open your Bibles. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'm going to speak on teach your children well. Because I do believe this, and I know this is true in my life, in my wife's life. I know this is true in parents who have tried uh, paths that are, that are similar to mine. And to future parents of every generation, the reality is, when they do pat us in the face with a shovel, when they do unplug us, when they do have that last moment where the family gathers around you, you want to be able to say not, I have the biggest business, I have the largest bank account, I have the, the most number of boats or houses or cars or whatever other thing. We're going to want to say, I did my best with my family. I tried to teach my children well. And yes, I do realize that Teach Your Children Well is a popular Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song. And yes, I will confess that the title sermon for the sermon came to mind when David Crosby died a couple of weeks ago. And then I looked at the lyrics, thought maybe I could work them into the sermon. And, nope, that's a big no. <laughs> but the concept of teaching your children well is a lot older than a 60s or 70s pop group, and it is a topic that needs our attention during what I would argue is perhaps the most challenging generation to parents, in which to be a parent, since perhaps the days of Noah or maybe even before. So what we're going to do this morning is not an exegetical masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, and my homiletics teacher would probably roll over in his grave should he were to hear this, but we're going to build on a skeleton and an outline that Moses gave the people of Israel via the Spirit of God, and this is going to be part sermon and part seminar, or as I like to say, a sermonar, all right? And I'm telling you right up front, we ain't going to get done today. 
and you don't have to pull the fire alarm, all right? So this is part one. Next week is part two. So don't panic when you see the time clicking away and I'm on point two, okay? Because I know I have a reputation for getting six points in 30 seconds. We're not going to do that today. We're going to go to a set time. Then we're stop. We're going to have communion. Then we're going to pick it up next week. I wish I had all the answers for you. As I said, I sometimes feel like the biggest failure. But you know, I'm called to preach and teach the truth. I'm required to be faithful and to leave outcomes to God. I'm commissioned to exhort us to biblical practices and values and principles. And with my very last breath, I intend on doing that in this lifetime. And when it comes to parenting, that ought to be the standard we have for our children. You will not be a perfect dad. You will not be a perfect mom. And kids, please don't hold your parents up to that standard because then you might be tempted to do that to yourself someday. And the reality is it just doesn't work that way. I loved my parents. My dad ensured that we were in church every time the doors were open. My dad, who grew up in a pagan home, came to know Christ later in life. He was in his 20s. But when God got a hold of his life, it changed him from the inside out. It was a big deal. My mother worked as a volunteer in a Christian school so I could have a Christian education. In exchange for her work, we got to go to the Christian school. My mama paid every dime of my first four years of college because she knew I wanted to go into ministry. And I was the first kid in my family ever to go to, family, to, to, go to college. When my dad died six weeks after I, gradu- or I moved to my first job, after I graduated from Bible college, I came home and I said to her, I'm going to move back home. I'm going to take care of you and my two sisters. About that time, a big semi-truck rolled into our barnyard and loaded up all the cows. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. She goes, you know what? I didn't raise you to come back and try to rescue me the first time something bad happened. I raised you to be serving the Lord all the days of your life. So in five days, you're going to get back up on that airplane and you're going to go home and you're going to serve God because that's what I raised you to do. That's my heritage. And I thank God for it. My mom was 81. We were at the elders retreat and some stuff. And I announced, I think some of the ladies were in there. I said, I got to go talk to my mom. You know, I went out on the beach, called my mom. She's my best counselor aside from my wife. Notice I got this side for my wife in there just in time. Because <laughs> my mama didn't raise an idiot. <laughs> I'm thankful for my heritage, but I got to tell you, my mom beat the tar out of me a few times and I didn't deserve it. <laughs> my mom about five foot one, weighed about 100 pounds, soaking wet and full of bananas. And I'm going to tell you, she could swing a mean switch. My dad had a temper that registered on the Richter scale. He said things in anger that to this day bother me. So kids, give your parents a little slack because you're going to need it someday. But the reality is this, you take, you know, no one wants to be judged by their stupidest comment. No one wants to be judged by their weakest moment. No one wants to be judged by their greatest failure. So understand, kids, you have imperfect parents. Parents, you are imperfect parents, and your kids will be imperfect parents. We live in an imperfect world that's broken. But here's what we do have. We do have truth. We do have the standard. We do have the milestones. We do have the foundation on which we build ourselves and on which we get redemption and by which we are held accountable for those stupid moments and by which we receive forgiveness for those moments and then given hope that we can do better the next time. 
So as parents, please know this. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Yes, this is hard. I'm hearing way too many of our young people say, I'm not going to have kids. I don't want to rear them in a way in, in this culture and in this environment. It's going to be too hard. I don't want them to go through what I go through. And let me just tell you, that's the spirit of fear speaking through you. And the spirit of fear does not come from God. It comes from Satan. God can give you what you need in the moment. And God has called you to a life of faithfulness and obedience, not success and perfection. We aspire for the ideals. We live with the realities. But children are a gift from the Lord. And parenting is an awesome responsibility and opportunity. So teach your children well. So let's look at this passage. Let's pull some points out of it. Then I'm going to try to give you some practical applications. We'll have some fun along the way. Next week, we're actually going to have some people sharing on the platform that I think you're going to enjoy. But let's look for some strategies for effective teaching or for effective parenting. And here's the first one. Discipling your children has to be a priority for the parents. It has to be a priority for parents. You say, well, how do I know that? Well, let's look at, again at Deuteronomy chapter 6. And let's look from the very beginning of this passage in, in, chapter, in verse 6. And these things that I command you today shall be on your heart. We don't want to ever just kind of like, oh yeah, on your heart. That's a nice, that, 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 that's, a, that's a nice phrase. It's a warm colloquialism. Yes, I mean, things are on my heart. No, no, no. There's a reason the Lord put that on there. And because the things that are on your heart are the things that are at your core. The things that are on your heart are the things that are important. They're the things that matter. They're the things that you meditate on and plan for and think about. And so whenever something is on your heart, we need to also understand this. God often places it on our heart. Have you ever had somebody's mind or a name come to your mind all of a sudden? And you say, wow, we're, I hadn't thought of that person in a long time. When that happens to me, I almost always try to pick up the phone or drop them a text because I'm assuming the Lord had a reason for bringing them to my mind and placing them on my heart. And I've been shocked over the years how many times I'll pick somebody up and say, hey, I, you know, you're on my heart today for some reason. Are you okay? And all of a sudden a torrent breaks loose. Well, why is that? Because God speaks to us through our heart. You know, some of us, and this is a danger for people like me. I like to think of myself as an academic. I like to think in facts and figures and, 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 and you know, solid things and absolutes. But you know what? You can become so academically oriented, you forget to listen to the Holy Spirit that lives in you and who speaks to your heart. God created us with a dualism. And the dualism is, yes, we know truth, but he works through us through his Holy Spirit. And that's an emotional thing. I have a friend who always says this. She goes, sometimes the Lord squeezes my heart so hard that water comes out of my eyes. But that's the reality. If you're not emotional about things that matter, there's something broken. You're not healthy. So take those moments. And, 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 and God said to Moses, write these words down. I want your people to understand this. I'm going to give you some heavy direction here. And I want this to be on your heart. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at even the idea. Write them up on the tables of thine heart. What does that mean? You know, put them on your forehead and on your hands. What does that mean? Write them on your doorpost. What does that mean? We're going to explore that later on. But the bottom line is this. It speaks of priority. And so in every intact, God-ordained and designed home, there are two roles through which the children are led. Two roles that are essential. Two roles that matter. And that is father and mother. And we need to begin with that. We need to understand that as we prioritize the discipleship of our children... 
It begins with the role of dad and mom. Now, you say, I'm a single parent through no choice of my own. Please, Please understand this. We preach ideals. We live with realities. Every single parent I know, when they're absolutely candid, will tell me how overwhelmed they are. And one of the reasons they're overwhelmed is because they're trying to do the job of two people. They're trying to get their kids to school. They're trying to get them up in the morning. They're trying to teach them and train them. They're trying to earn a living. They're trying to do the laundry. They're overwhelmed. They're burdened. They're, they're, they're so forth. Whether it's by widowhood or divorce or being a single parent from the get-go, whatever it is, God has given us a plan that is the ideal. Now, if you are in an intact marriage and you have kids, listen carefully. You have an opportunity to prioritize the discipleship of your family That will be easier for you than if you were alone, if you understand what those responsibilities entail. But if it's ever going to happen, it must be a priority for both dad and mom. Because sometimes here's what's happened. And, you know, I'm... We seem to lose our minds so much every time we go to an extreme one side or the other. So there's, you know, there's patriarchalism. Where, you know, the the, the dad is the grand poobah, you know. What he says is the law. If you get out of line, you're going to get barked at or you're going to get smacked alongside the head or whatever. And I kind of grew up in that, so I, 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 understand, I understand that. Um, I believe dad should be in charge. I believe that's biblical and so forth. But dads, don't be a jerk about it, you know, seriously. And, and at, at the same time, that, that extreme often has a, a, a woman who's, you know, or at least the, the trope of it is, you know, she's very timid and she's very, she's very quiet. She's very meek and very submissive. And all the kids, you know, they dress in gingham and, and sensible shoes and they work at Chick-fil-A, you know. All, all, and and, and so, sorry for all of you folks who work at Chick-fil-A. Sorry about that. But you, you, know, you know the stereotype, right? You, 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 you know that. Uh, but, but life's far more complicated than that. Far more complicated than that. And, 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 and by the way, sometimes people use those tropes to dislodge us from doing things that at their, their center are still good. The other extreme is, is the dad, who, you know, the, the Norman Rockwell picture. Remember the Norman Rockwell artist, you know, dad slouching in the living room on Sunday morning and he's smoking a cigarette and he's reading his paper and he's got his slippers and his robe on and mom has all of the kids and they're all lined up like little ducks behind her. She's walking out with her Bible underneath her hand. That, that's the other side of that trope where dad's a big jerk. He's lazy, he's, you know, beer drinking, cigar smoking, you know, tyrant. So... so Understand, the biblical model on this is that we are partners working together for the glory of God and the good of those that are placed under our watch care. So it has to be a priority for both of us if we're going to be successful in our home. And it has to be written on our heart. None of us, when God gave us children, looked into the face of that innocent little child and coochie-cooted underneath her chin and said, oh, I hope you grow up and go to prison someday. You don't say that, do you? Oh, I hope you grow up and break my heart. I want you to try meth as soon as you can. (laughs) Nobody does that, right? We get that. We have aspirations and we have dreams for our kids. I want you to be president of the United States. I want you to get rich early so I can retire sooner. You know, we've got all these big plans for our kids. I want you to, I want you to play in the NFL, preferably for the Kansas City Chiefs. I want this for you. 
We have aspiration for, but the problem is sometimes it ends with that. Because we don't make it a priority, we don't develop a plan, and because we don't develop a plan, then they just kind of grow up. Moms and dads, we each have a different role in the family to make prioritization of the discipleship of our kids work. Now, let me kind of say this before I get into this point, and that is this. It is the, it is the responsibility of the parent to be the leader of the discipleship in their home. If you don't remember anything else I say this morning, would you please remember this? It is the primary responsibility of the parent to be responsible for the spiritual discipleship of the children in the home. It is not the pastor's. It is not the student ministry pastor. It is not the Christian school. It is not the principal of the homeschool, otherwise known as mom. But it is the responsibility of the parents. And what has happened in our culture is many families have decided to disciple their kids by proxy. You say, what do you mean by that? As long as I put my kids in the right environment during their formative years, that somehow, some way, they're going to turn out and love Jesus. But there is nothing in history, research, or anything else that says that's an effective way. Many churches fall into this trap. Many churches have a philosophy that says, we need to disciple our kids better. So you know what we do? We hire a student ministry pastor. I'm not against student ministry pastor. In fact, we have a candidate for student ministry pastor in the room at this very moment, right? I believe student ministry pastors are fine. We need, a, we need a student wing. Many churches, ours is not one of them, but many churches will build an entire wing for the students. And, and, and they'll have their own room, they'll have their own band set up, they'll have, they'll have, they have their own budget, they have their own pastor, they have their own music, they have their own worship team, they have their own sound system, they have their own area of the campus. And here's what happens. We have a church by a church, not in the church, and it is the little church, and then you got the big church. What's the big church? It's where us cranky old people get to go. We don't want to put up with their music. And sometimes they're loud and rowdy and asking inappropriate questions. And sometimes I see them holding hands during church. Sometimes I see them all on their phones. We don't want any of that nonsense around us. So let's put them over in their own wing, give them their own budget, give them their own pastor, and let them sing their music. And what do we do? I call it the one-eared Mickey Mouse. You know how Mickey Mouse got his head, got two little ears. This is remove one ear. We got this one over here, and it's called youth ministry. The youth ministry sits over here, and the only thing that attaches the little ear to the big head is the budget. That's the price the people in the big church pay, so we don't have to deal with the nonsense from the youth ministry. Ouch. But that is the way we have done it in this country way too long. And so then when our kids go off to college, that little line disappears, that detach, and they float away into oblivion, and 85% of them never go to a big church again. That's what the statistics are saying. Right? We've got a problem in our approach. More people, more young people today are leaving the church when they become adults than ever before in the history of the church. Yet the programs of the church are more funded, more staffed, and more focused upon than in the history of the church. There was no such thing as youth pastors 100 years ago. 
There were no youth budgets. There was no separate band 100 years ago. In fact, the word teenager was not even used 100 years ago. That's a newer invention that came about in the 1940s. We didn't even refer to them to that. Why? Because we expect them to be adults. We expect them to be grown-ups. We expect them to sit and listen and work and serve and be part of the church and, 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 and do what everybody else did. And, and we miss that somehow. Here's, here, here's the reality. We're spending more money in the church on student ministry today than we ever have, and we're having fewer results than we have ever had in the history of the church. And so what do we do? Do we double down on that or do we fix it? And the reality is the way we fix it is we start where it was supposed to be all along because here's what the scripture says. I command you today shall be on your heart, speaking to the parents, you shall teach them diligently to your children. He didn't say, oh, now, now, now Moses, when you build the tabernacle, make sure you, you put a good youth wing in it, okay? Make, make sure you do that. And you call one of them really cool, super hip priests that, that kind of handle the sacrifice for the kids. You know, make sure he's got an earring, okay? Got to do that. Yeah. Maybe, you know what, tattoos are always a plus, so make sure he's got one of those too. Yeah. He didn't do any of that. By the way, I'm not against people with an earring or a tattoo or, you know, please, please you know, help me. <laughs> but you know the stereotypes, right? No, the idea is it begins at home and the research shows it. Here's what it research shows. When fathers don't attend church, when their children become adults, only 2% of the children who grow up in homes where dad doesn't attend church go to church regularly, and only 37% go irregularly, Christmas, Mother's Day, once every month or two. So 2% go regularly, 37% go irregularly. But when dad goes to church with his family, 44% of those kids grow up to attend church regularly. Regularly. Significantly higher, by the way, than the 85% that drop out. So one of the first things you can do to turn the odds that your kids will follow Christ in your favor, dads, is to go to church with them. Again, this isn't rocket surgery, is it? I mean, this is easy. This is easy. All you got to do is get your rear end out of bed and go to church with them. And the odds have shifted in your favor. The quote Hunger Games. All right? It's on your way. The reality is in the typical church or in the typical community today, 40% of the dads in our culture say that they attend church regularly. And again, there's a halo effect because we always make ourselves look better than we should on, on surveys, right? So 40%. 6% say, I attend regularly, which could be once a month. 53% of the women do. So there's a gulf, a gulf from the get-go. Dads, we need to step up. And dads, remember this. Fathers lead through significance. It's part of the way God created us. The primary need of every man in this room is he needs to feel needed. He needs to feel significant. And you say, oh, I know a guy. okay. 99.9% then if you want to play that game. But most men need to feel significant. We need to feel empowered. We need to feel our family safe around us. We need to feel that we can protect others. God has placed within us a chemistry 
that makes us a little louder, a little more aggressive, a little more dogmatic. It's why guys start wars. It's why guys get in trouble all the time. God created us that way. Why? Because we're bigger and we're stronger. It's biological. I don't care what they say on the Twitterverse. It starts there. And dads, that is an opportunity for you to provide spiritual security for your kids by stepping into the role and leading the way. I thank God so often for my dad. My dad was a morning person. Nobody else in my family is a morning person but my dad. He was a morning person. He would get up on Sunday mornings. He was so excited to go to church. And I, my, my room was in the basement. We had finished our basement so I could have my own room. The kitchen was right above it. My dad was six foot three, weighed about 230. And, and he, he, he walked like this, you know? So I knew when dad was up because he'd be pounding across the kitchen. He'd be singing. He'd be whistling on Sunday mornings. He would take the cereal bowls. We always had cereal on Sunday morning. He'd spin them on the table. And I'm downstairs in that bedroom and I'm thinking, I'm going to, have one. I'm going to prison. This is what's going to happen. One of these days, I'm going to snap. You know? But he, I can remember my dad in the wintertime starting the tractor to break the drifts down in the street in front of our house, in the road in front of our house, because we lived out in the country. And he would break the drifts down with the tractor at six o'clock in the morning so we could get in the pickup truck, all five of us, that had firewood in the back and it had more, more, better tires on it, and we could get to church. And we'd get into church, we'd walk in there, and the only other family was there that was the pastor. And we lived way out in the country. But my dad always said this, if the doors are open, the burls are there. That's, I'm sorry. I'm not a Burrell. When I'm in Missouri, I'm a Burrell. That's how they pronounce my name. And you all are going to harass me about that the rest of this day. I know that. But anyway, he would say that. I, I channeled my dad for just a moment. But if the church was open, the burls are there. And that was his mantra. And you know, I look back on it, and I thank God for a dad that said in our home, it's going to be a priority. And it is no surprise then that all of us children have made that a priority for us and so forth. You say, is that a magic? If I get my kids to church, will they absolutely turn out right? Can't guarantee that. But I will say this to you. It is the right thing to do because it's on your heart. It's the right thing to do because it's priority. It's the right thing to do because it sets patterns. It's the right thing to do because it communicates value. It's the right thing to do because the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It says this place is important. We, get our, we, we go to work on time. We get our kids to practice on time. We manage to make our golf tee without a problem. Then can one morning a week, can we pause and say, the priority in our family at this moment is going to be to be in the house of the Lord and to worship him. And you may never remember what the sermon was about, but the fact that you were there has established a baseline that's important for your children. You say, well, is it just about going to church? Oh, no, 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 no. It's also about opening your Bible. Here's a picture for you. I'm being really transparent. You're probably going to wish I hadn't, but I cannot tell you how many times I came up on, in the morning to find my dad sitting in his recliner with his Schofield Reference Bible open on his lap, dressed in his finest tidy whities <laughs> And that's how he held his devotions. I can see him to this day. And he would start his morning off in the orange recliner in the corner window, reading his Bible in his tidy whities my dad's been dead for almost 40 years. But don't you think that didn't leave a mark? My dad taught me the important things about following God. My dad was not a perfect man. My dad killed himself. 
right? My dad was not a perfect man. I don't know what demons tortured him in his heart and his mind. But you know, the things I choose to remember and on which I have anchored my life are the things that are anchored in this book that were modeled by my parents. And the world has changed a lot since I grew up in Missouri 60 years ago. But God's word hasn't. And his values haven't. And my goal for my own children and grandchildren haven't. So fathers, you lead through using the significance of your role. When dad leads the way, the rest of the family follows. When dad set the priorities and the outcomes, they're transferred. When dad establishes order, if he's doing it right, and he's doing it with love, and he's doing it by example, you're obeying this. And moms... Your primary strength is just the security you provide. When I hurt myself, I didn't run to dad. I ran to mom. If I had a splinter, I'd go to my dad. Dad would say, where's my Bowie knife? I'm going to chop that finger off. I'd run to my mom, and she'd get a needle out, and she'd warm it. You know, she'd cook it over the stove, get all the germs off. And she'd say, now look out the window and look for a bird. while I." And she'd get, and she'd get alcohol. And she'd get, Why? Because she wanted me to feel safe and secure. And she was gentle, and she was caring, and she was kind. I remember coming in, popping to say goodnight to my mom before she went to bed, and I went to bed, and I could see her kneeling by the bed praying. What a beautiful picture. My mom's still 81 years old, and I still have her, and I thank God for that. But the last memory I think I'll ever have of my mom is to seeing her kneeling by the side of her bed praying for her idiot son. Those are wonderful things, legacies, and it provided me with the security. And when we have parents that set the standard either loudly or softly, either through significance or through security, either through expectations or through nurturing, we're doing right by our children. Mothers impact the environment of the house. She could change the temperature in the house. Mothers sensed the needs. She knew. She, my mom knew when I was messing up. She had some kind of telepathy thing going. She was diligent. If I had a girlfriend over, we'd go down to the basement because that's where our TV was. My goodness, that woman found more stuff to get out of the deep freeze that was in the basement. <laughs> She'd start cooking for the next month. Oh, sorry, kids, don't mind me. Just got to get something out of the freezer. Just got to get something out of the freezer. And five minutes later, she'll be down there again. Why? Because mom knew what a rowdy kid I was. Well, those things are important. They sense the needs, they sense the opportunities, and they nurture their progress. Nobody may have believed in me, but I knew mama believed in me. And she would say, you know what I pray? I pray that God will use you in an incredible way. She didn't tell me I was stupid. She didn't tell me, uh, you're, you're a wreck. You're, you're, God will never use somebody like you. No, she always found a way. Just like God always finds, she represented the Holy Spirit in my life. And when I screwed up, she would say, I'm disappointed in you, Dan. But you know why I'm disappointed in you? Because I know how much better you are than what you just chose to do. And that's exactly what God does. There is nothing you've done in your life that God will not and cannot forgive you of. There is no failure you that have in your life that God cannot use that for his glory. He'll bring the roses out of the ashes of your life. He will give you victory in your worst defeat. He will give you an opportunity to glorify him if you'll just put your priorities in order. 
And parents, when you believe in the power of God in your kid's life, you are giving them a gift to be able to see themselves as God sees them. So look in their hearts and see what God sees. Oh, I know they're going to drive you to the last inch of your patience. I know there are literally going to be times where you say, why in the world did I have kids? There are going to be times in your life where you dream about that day when the last one drives away to wherever he's going. At this point, you don't even care whether it's college or not. There'll be those days. But you understand this. In this moment, we have an assignment, and the assignment is to be the primary disciple maker in our homes. And my time is up. And I got through one out of six. So we will pick this up next week. I hope you'll hear my heart. And if you take away anything from this, you say, well, I don't have kids anymore. Oh, no, 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 please. Today's parents need older people in their life that will walk with them. They'll walk with them. You say, well, I never had kids. Doesn't matter. Sometimes they just need somebody to listen. You say, well, God didn't. Stop making excuses. You've got the same Bible that parents have, all right? Sometimes we just journey with people. Sometimes we're the person that says, you and your wife need a date. I'm watching the kids. Get out. We can be that to each other. That's where the community of believers helps the parents in this next generation. Because you see, while we have earthly families, the biggest family and the family that will still matter in a thousand years is the family of God. And in that family, we serve him together for his good, for his glory, for our good, his glory, and that it's good for everybody.